Welcome to the Hacking Happy Podcast, a podcast designed to arm you with the tools and experiments that enable you to define happiness on your terms and inject more of it into each day. I'm your host, Penny Lacasso. I'm the world's first happiness hacker, and I have a bold mission, a mission to teach 10 million humans how to realize happiness on their terms by 2025. So if you're ready to ignite your self-belief and inject more of what makes you feel good into each day, let's get started. Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Hacking Happy podcast. Today we are joined by a client and equally a dear friend, Sophie. And Sophie, you're going to have to pronounce your surname because I don't even think I've asked you. Yeah, it's Lefebvre, rhymes with behave. Where is it from? It's French, but French-Canadian. The Canadians put silent letters in there to trip you up, I guess. I love it. So there you go. There's something I've learned today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited for this conversation for a couple of reasons. One, because I loved working with you and it was really interesting to watch your evolution as you and I went through your coaching experience together. Equally, you are someone that I learned a lot from because one of the things that we see so much of, I think, at the moment is people being diagnosed with ADHD Mm -hmm. later in life. And I think that you've got some really interesting insights to share around how that diagnosis has kind of impacted your life and how you've navigated it that might help other people in a similar situation. But first, I'm going to start where we always start, which is my favourite question. Tell us who you are as a human being. We worked on that a lot in our (laughs) our sessions because I don't think at the start I even knew who that was. Who am I as a person? Um, Well, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. And I am a person that is passionate about affecting change in the world that I'm in, not necessarily in a massive way, but having a positive impact on the people that I have interactions with. That's how I define myself these days. Talk to us about where you were when you and I first met because it was an interesting place, right? So I sit on the board of an organisation that supports women lawyers in Victoria and we have an annual event that's a social get-together where we invite along people who are members of our organisation to bring along people who aren't, to sort of introduce them to who we are and what we do and we always try to have some form of insightful discussion or entertaining chat as sort of the hook to get people to come along. And we'd had discussions about who was proposed to speak. And I had said, I just need joy. We've come out of two years of lockdowns in Melbourne. This is our first in-person event in a really long time. And I don't want somebody who's going to bring the doom and gloom. And so I had Googled (laughs) speakers on happiness in Melbourne and he came up. Wow. And I watched a couple of your videos and I also saw that you had been interviewed by Louise Vala at Gatehouse and watched that. I thought, okay, I think this could be applicable for our members. Book it. And I wasn't even thinking about myself at the time. I was like, yep, this is good for members. I don't need this, but it'll be great. And then you gave a presentation and I was like, oh, I fit all of these boxes. I constantly say I'm busy. I wake up more tired. Then I went to bed. I just feel stretched too thin. I think maybe I possibly am burnt out, not even burning out. I think I'm already there. Mm. So that was sort of the catalyst to have a discussion with you. And I was probably very reticent. (laughs) You probably remember that. Yeah, I I think you're probably the most sceptical person that like in terms of prospective coaching client, like when I spoke to you, I I definitely felt a level of scepticism as like, oh. 
Yeah, and I think that in part came from the fact that there seems to be a boom of like coaching happening and a lot of people are styling themselves as coaches and calling themselves coaches Mm. online and there's some people who I'm seeing calling themselves as coaches and I'm like, I don't understand what your qualifications are to tell me how I could live my life better because I look at how my life is set to yours and they seem on par if not the other way around. (laughs) And so definitely for me it was looking into your credentials and seeing like, okay, you understand the corporate world. You're not going to tell me that I can't operate in the legal industry because that was sort of a non-negotiable and I think I asked for evidence that you'd had clients who it had worked for because I was like I don't know it's a big investment and it's the financial investment but also the time investment I wanted to Mm. feel like I was making a smart choice for myself and that it wasn't just going to be like signing up for the Chris Hemsworth app during (laughs) lockdown that you looked at once and then forgot to delete and kept paying for the renewed fees so (laughs) I very much wanted to make sure that I felt I could commit to the program before I signed up for it. What made you, given you were a sceptic, what made you make the commitment? Like what was it that got you over the line? I'm always curious. I think it was before, definitely I got some actionable items out of the first talk that I'd seen you give. And from that talk, from having a look through your book, from our initial discussion, I went into a meeting with my managers with confidence and reframed and set some boundaries. And I had struggled to do that for like six months before then. And I was like, okay, if I did this with just one conversation that was like a scoping, what could coaching achieve for me? Imagine what you might be able to achieve once there is that fuller commitment, that more development into to what I want to achieve. And I realized in our first discussions that I actually didn't know what I wanted to achieve. I knew I was on a particular path. I knew that I was taking on some leadership responsibilities, both at work and in my not-for-profit work in the next 12 months. But I wasn't really clear on other than just following the steps of the well-trodden path. I wasn't clear on what I actually wanted to achieve. So yeah, I sort of saw it as a way of developing for me not exactly a five-year plan, but at least a, an idea of where I want to go. And so what was the point for you? I love tipping points. What was the point where you said something's got to change? Like what was it about your situation that made you realise that I need to do something different? I think I realised that I was had been saying for a long time to my team and to to my managers that, you know, I'm not coping, we've got too much on, we're not working smart, we're working too hard, we're taking on too much. And everybody would agree with me, but we wouldn't come up with a viable solution that would actually make change. Mm -hmm. And the moment for me was when I realised, well, I can't rely on somebody else to come up with those solutions, but I'm so frazzled I'm not coming up with them myself. And I never wanted to be that person that comes to their team with problems unless you have some idea of a solution. Even if it's not the right solution, I think you should always be the person that comes to the table and says, there's a problem, here's my idea, but I'm not sure if it's right, let's workshop it. And I was just coming to the table with problems because I didn't have the capacity to even think beyond my current stresses. So yeah, that was for me the moment where I was like, okay, this is why I need to change. I can't keep going through this cycle. And I did realize and it was part of being diagnosed with ADHD. I've realized that I have been in this cycle for a while of burning myself out in jobs and then moving along to the next one 
and feeling like that's the only way I can get a break. But I really love where I'm working now and Mm. I didn't want that to happen again and I wanted to make it work. And I was worried that I would reach a point where I would just feel like I'll just move on and then I'll have a little break between jobs and start somewhere else and start the cycle again. And I didn't want that to happen. You pick up on two really interesting points that I see consistently. One is so many people come to me and say, I think I need help, but I don't know what I want. And so often that is because like your situation, they've been so overwhelmed for so long with so much going on. It's like, how can you work out what you want when there's no space for it? And you and I spoke a lot about this. So a lot of the work is just even just creating the space to be able to think and explore and experiment, which I think is really powerful. The other thing that you mentioned, which I see consistently, is that burnout is a pattern. Yeah. And often just that lack of recognition of the pattern is really interesting where, like you said, I would burn out and then jump jobs. And that was like your way to be able to recalibrate, rebalance and go back. But then you do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And something I've discovered through my ADHD journey is that that's a really common thing with people who have ADHD because we lack some of that dopamine control and like executive functioning. And we quite often, women at least, and it's different depending on the type of ADHD you have, but I have the inattentive type and it's much more common in women. But we usually excelled at school because we had these periods of sort of fake crisis, like exams, and that's when you get all the adrenaline rush and you do a great job and then you've got forced breaks because you have school holidays or Mm. at university you have university breaks and, yeah, you might do a job in retail, but you've got time to recuperate and refresh. In the real working world, you don't have those breaks unless I guess you work in education. It's working full time and it's up to you to put your foot down and say, I need a break. And I've never been good at that. I've worked through in most jobs I've worked, unless I've been forced to take leave over the Christmas period, I've worked through the summer holiday period because I've been told that there's work to do. And I either I've been told to work or I've put my hand up because I just don't want to feel like I'm letting anybody down. And so, yeah, that was an interesting discovery for me. And it's something that I definitely see replicated in a lot of people. Mm. I also think that the girl boss era has had a lot to answer for in terms of how it's burning people out. Sort of been led to believe that the only way that you're successful is if you're always hustling. And that's not a healthy culture. I do think there's times when you should hustle and, you know, lean in was all about take your time to lean in, but also take your time to lean out. And I think the leaning out message has really been lost. And as a culture, we've sort of glorified the idea that if you've always got something on your plate, then you must be important and you must be achieving things. But as you said, that means you're missing out on the space to decide what you actually want to achieve. And some of the most important parts of our lives are outside of our working realm. Yeah, like the common refrain isn't is that you won't be on your deathbed wishing you'd worked more. So that was a really important thing for me was to have something outside of work. Your ADHD journey is an interesting one. And I've got to say, like, I always learn as much as you do in the process of coaching because every client's different, right? You taught me loads. And especially in the realm of ADHD, talk to us about the diagnosis. And like, so how did you get to a diagnosis? Because I know a lot of people are wondering whether they're in this realm. So how did you get to a diagnosis? And also, I'm really interested in you, because we had a lot of conversations about this. Before you got that diagnosis, I'm really interested if you can help paint a picture of how you were feeling about the way you behave 
saved in life because it was fascinating to me is you thought there was something wrong, right? And we got to the point where it was more about a superpower. Like there were so many good yeah. things. It's hard to even remember the time before COVID. <laughs> I think that was like the catalyst for me of when I realised my brain's not working the same as other people. In our first like 2020 lockdowns, I wouldn't say I was thriving, but I was achieving things. I was getting things done. I was running on the adrenaline. I was getting the dopamine hits from the work that I was doing and the false, not false sense that at the time it was in crisis, but that sense of urgency for everything because we were in lockdown really sort of pushed me along and I was getting a lot of things done. But my whole life I've struggled with things like time management, with just an understanding of how long a task will take. When I was a kid, my parents used to say, like, we don't understand. We'll tell you, you know, go to your room and get dressed. And then half an hour later, we'll come back and you're not dressed. And you can't even tell us what you've been doing. I'm like, I don't even know what I was doing. I don't know. Got distracted. I saw something happens to me constantly when I'm cleaning my house. I'll pick something up to move it to another room and start doing another task because I get distracted by the things that I see. And I had always just thought that was a personal failing that I just wasn't perceptive enough. I wasn't good at concentrating. I was a procrastinator. I knew I was good at the work that I did, but I also knew it was really hard sometimes to start the work if it didn't feel interesting. Mm. I've always struggled with admin. If I don't have systems in place to manage things like paying my bills, then I will forget them. And I really re rely on accountability. And yeah, as I said, I always just thought that was, I'm not good at adulting. I'm not good at doing these things. I need somebody to tell me to do them. And I had seen probably around 2019, 2020, this sort of articles floating around about the rise of ADHD and diagnosis in women. And I looked at them, and I was like, oh, that can't be me. Like I'm a lawyer, I'm successful. Um, I, that doesn't apply. But I'd always had anxiety and I had seen a psychologist for a really long time. And I had sort of said to her at one point, I was like, I feel like even with previous psychologists and with you, I've talked about this procrastination issue and none of these solutions that we're coming up with work. And my, I just don't get it. Like, what, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> and it was at that point that she said, oh, have you heard of ADHD? I want you to take a couple of tests. And I kind of took the test almost to prove her wrong. I was like, I have ADHD, sure, <laughs> give me the tests. And in the process as well, she asked me to do some tests for um, autism and brought back the results and they showed, and they are very preliminary, they're not final diagnoses, but they showed that I showed indicators of inattentive ADHD, but also a little bit of hyperactive. And on her recommendation, I went down the path of a formal diagnosis through a psychiatrist, which is a horrific process. And if anybody is in that process at the moment, I would just like want to give them a hug. It is oh. so unfairly difficult. And I almost felt like it was made difficult on purpose to prove that, like, if you could go through that process, you must have ADHD. Like, because why would you tolerate so much pain? Yeah. Yeah. And it just the number of things where it would be like, you have to fill out these forms and make these payments and we'll book you in, but you have to call this number to confirm. And it's like, I just, it's everywhere all at once and I can't focus on it. And nobody's holding my hand through it. And, I was in a fortunate enough position I could go through the private sector to do it and go to specialists, but they're charging an arm and a leg. It's barely covered in Medicare. There's no coverage in NDIS. It's been a really expensive process. And at the end of the day, a diagnosis is just that. It's a diagnosis. It's um, not a, an in-state sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that was the most difficult thing to reconcile was it's not like discovering that you have a disease that has a cure. It's, okay, this is it just the way your brain works. It will work this way forever. 
We've got some tools. We've got some medications that you can try and see if it helps, perhaps in the short term, perhaps in the long term. And it's also from speaking to the specialist now after having gotten my formal diagnosis and starting medication, they're like, oh, we're also just not sure what the long-term effects of this will be. We're almost in an experimental stage where a bunch of adults are now being medicated and previously we used to medicate children and think that that fixed things, but then they're needing it again in adulthood. So that's the scary side of it. The benefit of it is now that I know how my brain works, I can try to make it work for me. Mm -hmm. I know that certain tasks, if I can give them my full attention, that's great. And I also know I have to trick my brain into doing the things that it doesn't like doing. If I do not like having to tidy my house, so I have to have a podcast playing while I'm doing it or music or some sort of distraction that makes me, tricks my brain into thinking that it's doing something fun. Hey there, thought I'd just press pause for a moment and ask you a question. I wonder if, like I used to, you use work as a form of escapism to avoid feelings that bubble under the surface and whisper to you constantly, this is not the life I want to live. But what if it doesn't have to be this way? What if I told you you could bounce out of bed feeling confident in your path because you know what action to take to feel aligned and in motion with the life you long for? If you'd like to do this year differently, shift gears into freedom mode, let your priorities drive your time, not the other way around, feel courageous and confident in uncertainty and holistically supported on the journey, Flourish Forward Coaching might be right for you. Go to flourishforwardcoaching.com to book a discovery call today. I remember you saying to me when we started, you know, that meditation wasn't something that worked for you. I always remember this, right? <laughs> and I want to talk about the role of experimentation in our work together because I thought you were amazing and I'm a huge advocate of experimentation. But one of the things you said did work, and this is why I loved your approach to experimentation, you're like, meditation or mindfulness doesn't work for me. And then you turned around and you said to me one day, I found a mindfulness that does work for me. It's kids' meditations. Yeah. And I've also found that that goes through phases. Yeah. And sometimes I'll put on one that worked for me previously and no effect, can't do it, can't focus. And have discovered that that can also be an ADHD thing, that we have fixations on things for a while and absolutely love them. Like why often it's a type of food. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, oh, I couldn't even look at it. I've got to switch to something else. But, yeah, I definitely found I can't handle a meditation that takes itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And, like, there was a series, I think it was done for Headspace with Sesame Street characters. And I was like, I can do this. This is fine. I can. <laughs> it doesn't go for more than five minutes. It's designed for kids. The kid can do it. I can do it. So when when I had to, that's what I did. And I think definitely meditation is one of those things where, and I think you repeated it enough that it's something kid. And I'm like, okay, nobody's good at it. <laughs> That's the point of it. And in my process of trying it as well, I was somewhere where meditation was very much promoted and realized that it's not just about being distracted by the outside forces. It's also being distracted by your thoughts. Cause that had always been the thing that I thought I was failing with meditation was that my mind was thinking about the meditation while I was meditating yeah. and I was getting caught up in, am I doing it right? It's almost like that thing of if you go to bed too late at night and you're like oh if I go to sleep right now I'll get three hours sleep and so then you just constantly think you almost talk yourself out (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and that's how I would approach 
meditation. And I think now I'm less strict about it. It's like worst case scenario, you just like have relaxed for 10 minutes and didn't look at a screen. That's a win. So let's talk about experimentation because when we started, a lot of your narrative was I can't, these are things I've tried, I can't do this, I can't do that. Yeah. And something happened and so I was always advocating experimentation, right? And so everything, so I say, how can you work out what you want if you don't know what's available to you and you don't have a go at it, right? And so if you have a go at it and it doesn't work, great, that's fine. But if you don't have a go, you'll never know. And there was a point in time where something shifted in you and you truly embraced the role of experimentation. So talk to us about, I suppose, what that shift was, but equally, what were some of the most powerful experiments you undertook? Because some of the things you did, I would never (laughs) have even thought you would have done when we started, right? I think definitely had a moment where I caught COVID. And that's right. (laughs) It wasn't like. I have seen some of the um, uh, interesting people on social media who say, oh, COVID is a divine experience. It wasn't that. But it was that realisation of, like, I am sick and I literally cannot work. And if they can't figure it out without me, what is the point? I work in a supportive work environment. It's not like I work in a place where I'm constantly in fear of losing my job. I work in a very supportive work environment with very good culture. But I still felt this need that, like, even though I'm sick, I should be turning up to work. This was pre-2020. These days I would just work from home. But I got sick and I could not work. And I realised, like, this is it. Like, if I can't stop working when I've got COVID, when am I going to be able to stop working? And so that for me was a real, like, reset on the expectations that I was allowing people to put on me. And I realised my behaviour was setting those expectations. Mm. I was saying, I'm really tired and have worked too long this week and then would still be at work at 7pm. And so the people's expectation was, well, I can still email you because you're still there. And I'm not perfect at it and I still am not the best at setting boundaries and it's something I think I'll work on for the rest of my life. And I think that's like a very common problem for women and wanting to be Mm -hmm. likeable and we don't like to set boundaries. So then the thing for me, what makes experiments work is realising when they do work and like, okay, there's a positive outcome from this. So you had sent me the experiment prior to me having COVID of just wake up every morning and say to yourself, it's going to be a great day. And then I got COVID and I was like, I can't say it's going to be a great day. I feel like absolute shit. (laughs) It was like, today's going to be an okay day. That's my goal. That's all I can do. I'm just going to make it through. And the thing was that every day I said it, every day it was true. And I was like, okay, kind of worked. Fine. (laughs) And yeah, for me, it was just the outcomes. And in in some ways, what made me more accepting of trying new things and experimenting sometimes was the idea was like, I'm just going to prove you wrong and that it doesn't work. Because some of them did fail. Some of them weren't for me. And I think very early on, a lot of them were failing and we had to readjust how we were doing things for me because my brain didn't work the way your other clients' brains work. Yep. And that made it more acceptable for me I was scared at first I was like these are not working this is not my brain doesn't do this I can't handle it and I was a bit worried that I was like oh we've got how many more weeks of this everything we're trying is failing but credit to you you adapted and and we changed tack a few times and found stuff that worked for me and it it worked for me at that time and possibly wouldn't work now and I'm, I'm discovering that about myself like I'm not nothing is fixed 
I'm still changing and so the things that I do every day need to change and adapt to match that. I love that you share that, right, because firstly there is no one-size-fits-all in the realm of adapting and working out what works for you, but equally it's a process of evolution. And I'll never forget when we ended up you wrote me the most beautiful card (laughs) and I can't remember the exact words. Do you remember what you wrote? I wrote something about you didn't wave a magic wand but you've given me the tools so I can fix my life myself. (laughs) Yes, and and that for me I was like, oh, my my heart was full because – that for me is exactly what I want to do. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you the skills to work out what works for you. So when you say what worked before may not work now, and, you know, it's an evolution, it's exactly what this process is. You know, I'm, you know, no one's ever done in this space. No one's ever done. So like you say, there were some things at the start, like where we were just like, things weren't working and we adapted, right? You did some pretty amazing stuff, right? So this is a woman who wouldn't take a day off when she was sick, who was always available, who was always on. You got COVID. You had this moment where you were like, right, if I can't check out now, I'm never going to be able to check out. Yeah. And then you went and booked <laughs> yeah. a retreat, right, yeah. where you were completely disconnected from everything and took a full-blown break yeah. with no contact. Yeah, so I had the benefit, I guess, that, I was going to be traveling anyway that was work-related. The flights were booked. I knew I was going to Queensland and my work had said, you should probably have some time off. Like you've got a lot of leave banked. We know that you're burnt out. Just book some time off. And so I was like, let's tie it all together. I'm going to be up there. I'll just find something. And it just sort of came from like a Google search of like, what even is in Queensland? I think I've been to Queensland since I was a teenager and I was like, I don't really want to do Gold Coast, you know, theme parks anymore. And I knew that I wanted a break where I wouldn't be tempted to work. And through that found wellbeing retreat called Eden, where sort of one of their selling points is that because they are based from a valley, there's limited phone reception, they don't have internet, there's no TVs in your rooms, they're structured days, but you can choose what you do want to do and don't want to do. And so the big attraction for me was the digital disconnecting because I did feel like was constantly online, constantly checking work and personal emails and constantly just being engaged digitally but not engaged physically. And so I signed up with the intention that I was like, worst case scenario, I do a couple of, you know, yoga sessions and have a good sleep in. Didn't really know how much I would be participating in the activities, but I did a lot of them and it was a very much a like a retreat in both senses in terms of it was a retreat from the busyness of the world but also an inward sort of looking situation of sort of reassessing how I was looking after myself slash not looking after myself. So what do you think was perhaps the most powerful takeaway from the whole process? I think I had to reassess what self-care meant. Mm. I think for a really long time I was like, yeah, I do self-care. Like I'll watch a movie on a Friday night and have a (laughs) glass of wine and every now and again I book a massage. So tick, box, done. What, What else do you need? And I do think I've constantly had that feeling and that guilt that 
I am single without children. So what do I have to complain about? I don't, I'm not balancing caring responsibilities. I'm not responsible for other human beings. So I have nothing to complain about. So therefore my life's easy. And that's not the reality. And everybody's got their own challenges and pushes. And I probably take on extra things outside of my work life as responsibilities because I feel that not emptiness, but I just feel I have that capacity but I do it to the detriment of myself and can sometimes stop to think about like, what am I actually doing that is is in my own interest and looking after myself? So there has been a, a bit of a reset in terms of, you know, self-care means booking a dentist appointment. Self-care means just checking in and saying no sometimes. And even like yesterday I had the opportunity, I'd been at a conference, there was a gala dinner afterwards and somebody offered me the ticket to go along and I was like, I haven't stopped work up before 8pm all week. I just want to go home and go to bed, sorry. And being comfortable to say no. Throughout the process, you you became very assertive. Yeah. In terms of when we started, you know, you were perhaps less vocal in your perspectives on things, in telling people what you wanted or what you needed. And equally, you're in this whole leadership space now where you're evolving as a leader and actually having, what would you say? I would say frank conversations with people you were managing and giving them feedback that was actually helping them in their growth. Yeah. I think I definitely, it's interesting you pick assertive as the word because I think I'd always been very clear on my opinions. I've mm. never held back on having an opinion, but I think I backed myself a little bit more to not just say, well, I've said my piece and you deal with it with how you want. I felt more empowered to say, and this is why, and I think we have to do it my way or to recognize as well when I don't have the answers and and to reach out for that help. But definitely I have found myself now in a position where I'm responsible for others and managing them and having to reframe the way that I do things and the way that I interact to not necessarily be a friend and you want to be supportive and, and look after the people that you're responsible for, but to also empower them to feel like they have control over their life. I know that I don't like being micromanaged and I've realized I really hate micromanaging. <laughs> I would much rather work with somebody and put them in a position to excel at the things that they can excel in. And I'll just step in to assist where they need development. And it's a lot more work to do that. <laughs> I've realized mm. like micromanaging, I had always thought whenever I'd had people who'd micromanaged me, like, how do we even have the time to do this? Like, just let me go. But I'm like, oh, no, it actually is takes a lot more energy to step back because you have to observe from a distance. You have to keep an eye on things. You're ultimately responsible, but it's really hard to let other people fail. Yeah. And that's been a big lesson is that I have to be in a position where I'm creating an environment that's safe for people to fail in a way that, isn't detrimental. I'm a lawyer still, so it can't be detrimental to our clients. So failing in a safe space with my team means, you know, having a go, getting it wrong with enough time that I can review it and fix it before anybody sees it. Having somebody sit in in a meeting and saying to them, you know, if you've got thoughts, please share them, but being prepared to jump in in case they say the wrong thing. That's been a real skill to develop. And I think it was something that I was aware I could do and I worried I wouldn't be good at because within my industry, the only way you sort of 
progress upwards is by managing people. And I've worked for a lot of people who are great lawyers and terrible managers. And they've ended up in these people management positions because that's the only way that they could progress, Mm. but it's not their skill set. And so I've always been really aware that that's something I have to be good at if I want to progress. And also if I want to change the systems, there's a lot about the practice of law that I love. And there's a lot about our systems which are broken and need to be changed, but you've got to be in a position of authority to make those changes. So getting myself positioned as an authority to be able to say, look, I understand the systems, I'm working within them, but this is why we need to change them. That's been really important to me. Mm. So my last question is around what advice would you have for someone who perhaps was where you were when we met in terms of feeling a lot of the people that come to me, they're high performing like you were, you know, they've been successful in their career, but they're completely burnt out, overwhelmed and exhausted and sort of Mm -hmm. sitting there going, I know this is unsustainable. It's not what I want, but I don't know what I do want sort of thing. Take a break. Yeah. And I'm glad that we did what we did and and we started the program when we did, because if we didn't, I probably would have like pushed it to the back of the list and been like, I'll get to that next year. Don't have time right now. I wish I had have had the space to take a break when we started. I don't think I mentally was in the place that I could do that. Mm. I think I probably would have taken a week long holiday somewhere where I did have access to the internet and I probably would have surreptitiously been working. I think... If you're in that position where you're feeling burnt out, where you're feeling like the world is on your shoulders, and I even now, having gone through this process, I'm not perfect. I've had a really busy month and I feel like I'm spinning plates and like I'm dropping balls, mixed metaphor. (laughs) And I even said to my manager the other day, I'm like, I've dropped the ball on something and I'm sorry, but there's a lot happening right now and I missed it. And she's like, yeah, it's not like you, but I get it. There's a lot on tell me what you need and we'll find a way to lighten this load and shift priorities. And that's been a really amazing difference. I think I've felt better about saying I can recognise that I know myself well enough and I trust myself well enough to know that it's not just it's a me problem, it's a situational problem. I can push back and say this isn't just me not paying attention, this is us as a team having too much on, we need to reprioritize, we need to push back and tell clients no. And I have a supportive work environment where they'll say, yep, we can do that. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes I'm sure that there are people who work as surgeons and that's not an option and you can't decide midway through somebody's surgery that like, oh, I just need a break. But it's that prioritization. And I have put myself on my priority list and I hadn't, I don't think I'd ever been on my priority list. So that's been my biggest change. Mm. Thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure to see you. No worries. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of the Hacking Happy podcast. If there was something that ignited a flame or sparked a thought within you from this conversation, please take a screenshot and share it on your preferred social media platform. Feel free to tag me in Hacking Happy Co or Penny Lacalso. Reviews are so important to reaching my goal of making 10 million beautiful humans just like yourself happier. So if you enjoyed your listen, please take a moment, leave a review and a rating on your preferred podcast listening platform. Until the next episode, remember, happiness looks good on you. Bye for now.